Al-Hassan ibn al-Sabah was an energetic and capable man with great knowledge of geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, magic, and other matters. He went on far-ranging journeys which brought him to Egypt. He had an audience with the Caliph Imam of Egypt, Al-Mustansir, who received him with honor and gave him money, ordering him to call people to recognize his imamate. Hassan asked Al-Mustansir, Who is the Imam after you? And the Caliph Imam indicated his son Nizar. Hassan would take the Caliph Imam's word to heart and continued to follow Nizar, even after the Egyptians themselves turned on Nizar and chose to follow his brother instead. After Egypt, Hassan went to Syria, Mesopotamia, Diyarbakir, and Anatolia, and then returned to Khorasan. He visited Kashgar and Transoxiana, wandering amongst peoples and leading them astray. While wandering the region of Kazwin, south of the Caspian Sea, he came across the castle of Alamut. It is said that a Dalamite prince who was fond of hunting flew an eagle one day, and when he followed it, he saw that it alighted on the site of this future castle. He found it to be an impregnable position, so he ordered the castle to be built there and called it Alamut, which in the Iranian tongue of the Dalamites means the eagle's teaching. This place and the vicinity are called Dalikan. There are strong fortresses there, of which the most famous is Alamut. This region was held as a tax farm by Sharaf Shah al-Jafari, who appointed a governor of the castle, a simple-minded and guileless man. When Hassan saw Alamut and got to know the inhabitants of that region, he stayed on amongst them, and eager to mislead them, carried on his preaching in secret. He made a show of asceticism, and with his clever ways, he quickly gained converts and followers. Indeed, even the governor of Alamut had a good opinion of him, and used to hold sessions with him to gain spiritual benefit from him. As time went on, Hassan consolidated his position, and when most of those in the region had come to follow him, he decided the time had come to end his pretense. One day, he went to the governor in the castle of Alamut and said to him, Leave this castle. The governor smiled, thinking this to clearly be a joke. Hassan then spoke with authority to the soldiers of the castle and ordered them to eject the governor. To the governor's shock, they obeyed their new master, and the governor was banished. In this way, Hassan ibn Sabah became master of the castle of Alamut. Upon hearing what had happened, the Seljuk vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, sent a great army to take back the castle. They besieged it and blockaded the roads. Hassan suffered from the siege, and so he ordered the assassination of the vizier. When Nizam al-Mulk was dead, the army retreated. Seeing the fortitude of Hassan and the walls of Alamut, the great sultan Malik Shah wrote to Hassan, saying, O Hassan ibn Sabah, it is surprising that you have invented a new faith and religion and have enticed people into it by various devious means. You have been traitorous to the ruling authority. You have beguiled many brave and simple mountain folk by exploiting their simple nature and have formed an army of them who, wherever they go, kill innocent people and make them targets of their daggers. Moreover, you revile against the Abbasid Caliphs who are responsible for the maintenance of Islam, of the empire, of the nation, 
and who are the upholders of religion and the state. It is they who are the foundation of the organization and administration. You should desist from following this wrong path and become a good Muslim, or else we might be forced to send troops against you. The commencement of this action depends on your behavior or upon the receipt of your reply. Keep away from the dangerous policy you are following. Have mercy on your own self and on your followers, and do not unnecessarily hurl them into disaster. Do not let your strong defenses and fortresses deceive you and make you conceited. With this sincere advice, I may add this also very clearly, that even if Alamut were one of the fortresses of the heavens, I could level it to the ground by the grace of God. With these words, the great sultan had hoped to intimidate Hassan, but he failed. Hassan would outlive the great sultan, and his fortress at Alamut would stand for centuries, outlasting the Seljuk Empire and the Egyptian Caliphate. The Nizari Ismailis would defy all the rulers of the era, Christian and Muslim alike, and within the impenetrable walls of Alamut and other castles like it. They would direct the daggers of their assassins into the hearts of any who would dare stand against them. Welcome to History of the Uchimer, episode 1.15. I'm going to start my own religious sect with murder and weed. Our opening today is mostly based on the account of the historian Ibn al-Athir, who was not a follower of Hassan ibn Sabah, and so viewed the origins of his sect, the Nizari Ismailis, from the outside. So of course, some of the details may be off, but I wanted to portray the way that the Muslim world viewed the assassins, the Nizari Ismailis. Now, before we get into it, some quick corrections. Uh, just a note on pronunciation from the previous episode. I inconsistently used the romanization of the name Bozon and Buzon for the Seljuk Emir of Edessa. The reason for this is just that the sources I was reading used both of these forms. The thing is, classical Arabic only has three cardinal vowels, a, i, and u. Other vowel sounds like e and o are really just variants of these three. So when words move either into or out of Arabic, there is some distortion of the vowels. Uh, that's basically why you sometimes see Muslim with an o and sometimes with a u, Muslim, and Muhammad with either an a or an e. So anyway, Bozan seems to be a closer representation of his Turkic name with an o, and Buzan is the way it was recorded in Arabic. Kind of. Arabic doesn't write any vowels, but that's a whole nother thing. I was also inconsistent with the name Toktekin versus Toktakin. And actually, Tuktekin also exists. It's also worth noting that Turkic languages have evolved over time, and it's hard to actually know how they would have said their own names at the time. From now on, for our Turkic friends, I'm going to try to use pronunciations that are closer to modern Turkish. That's not a perfect solution, and because I don't speak Turkish, I'm probably going to make mistakes anyway, 
But this way, I can just check Turkish Wikipedia for the name and use that. Quick side note to mention that I'm also trying to work on my Arabic terms and names. It's a lot harder than Greek or Turkish because the script is harder to work out for me, and when it's romanized, it's often done so inconsistently. I also cannot for the life of me work out how to pronounce those emphatic consonants. I have similar challenges with Armenian and Persian, so bear with me. Anything that's not Germanic or Romance is a lot harder for me to get a handle on, but I really do feel the effort's worth it. Whenever I hear terrible French or Spanish represented in English, it's just so distracting, and I wouldn't like any Greek, Turkish, or Arabic speakers to feel the same way. Okay, so getting to the show proper. I am very excited. Today, we're going to talk about one of the organizations that made me realize I couldn't just start this podcast in 1095 with the First Crusade. If we were really going to understand the Uchimer states, we needed to understand the context of the world they were born into. And as I started to look into this organization in particular, I realized just how much of their immediate history was really tied to both the Fatimids and the Seljuks. And this organization, of course, is the Order of the Assassins, or the Nizari Ismaili state. In the West, the Assassins are probably the best-known players in the 12th century Middle East. I would say that most people know about the Crusades, but maybe nothing about the Crusader states. And they probably couldn't name a single Crusader. Maybe some more history-minded folks, no names like Saladin or Richard the Lionheart. But everyone, history buff or not, has some knowledge about the Assassins. Now, this episode is going to be focused on the development of the Fatimids in the last few decades of the 10th century, and the origin of what would come to be known as the Order of the Assassins. That means we won't be doing a full analysis of what this organization was and would come to be, as well as its legacy, but I do feel obliged to mention that the Order of the Assassins didn't actually call themselves this, and a more appropriate name would be the Nizari Ismaili State. Although state is a bit of an exaggeration, this organization was more of a collection of fortified locations throughout Syria, Mesopotamia, and Persia. The Nizari Ismaili bit comes from the fact that they were a splinter sect of the Ismaili Shia faith that ruled in the Fatimid Caliphate. The name Assassins probably comes from a derogatory term used by other Muslims, Hashishi, which is related to the word Hashish, as in the drug, marijuana, reefer, the devil's lettuce, jazz cigarettes. However, it's really unlikely that the Assassins were actually stoners. The term Hashishi was used as a general insult, like saying the scum of the earth. You can kind of compare it to the negative connotations of a term like junkie. Of course, we all know that if the assassins had actually been potheads, they likely wouldn't have gotten much killing done at all. Like, you know, there's indica that's like the body high, and there's sativa that's like the head high, or vice versa, but I don't think there's a strain that's like the politically motivated murder high. Now I'm actually kind of thinking about like a medieval stoner comedy. Think like Harold and Kumar besiege White Castle. If any folks at Netflix are out there listening, hit me up. <laughs> anyway, as I mentioned, myths about their drug use were present even in the medieval era. And it's likely the Franks picked them up from less educated or rural Muslims. And it's also likely the spreading of these myths was probably encouraged by the assassins. See, the assassins were all about spectacle. They wanted to be feared. They would have been super stoked to know that they were the origin of the word assassination. But, like I said, we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk in more detail about their organization later on. That's because today, we'll be focusing on their origins. And to do so, 
we'll be going back to Egypt. Last time we left the Fatimid Caliphate, the Armenian general, Badr al-Jamali, was assuming control of both the civil administration and the army, becoming the first vizier of the sword, a de facto military dictator with total control over the caliphate. This had not been an easy process, and Badr al-Jamali's rise to power was only made possible by the years of famine and civil war that had devastated the caliphate. Accordingly, in 1078, when Badr al-Jamali was formally crowned as vizier, he was faced with many challenges if he wanted to rejuvenate the bloodied caliphate. First up was serious administrative reform. See, the caliphate faced two interconnected problems. First was paying the military. The state was flat broke, and the coffers had been looted by the rampaging armies during the civil war. The second problem was the lack of productivity in the caliphate. Civil war is, surprise, surprise, bad for business. And much of what was once fertile land had fallen into disuse during the years of conflict. Luckily, there was a way to kill two birds with one stone here. Simply pay the soldiers in land. This was a time-honored solution, and you could find similar arrangements, most famously in Western Europe, but also in the land of the Seljuks. It was a convenient solution, but it often led to a fragmentation of power. Famously so in the case of France and other parts of Western Europe after the age of Charlemagne. The difference here was that Egypt had a millennia-long old tradition of centralized power, and so the amount of control the new military aristocracy had in their fiefs, or in Arabic, iktat, was limited to tax collection. It didn't include control of other sorts of administration, like the courts, for example. Still... This opened the door, at least a little bit, to an integration of the military into the caliphate's administration and economy. It also made them less dependent on the state for payment, a dangerous game to play. Badr al-Jamali also introduced a new player into the demographics of the caliphate, the Armenians. The Armenian presence was made manifest in the construction of a new wall in the capital, the conqueror, Al-Qahida, Cairo. Badr al-Jamali brought three Armenian architects from Edessa to work on the project. Edessa, if you'll recall, had once represented the Syrian border of the Roman Empire, after being captured by Georgios Maniakis. And these architects were working in a Roman tradition when they built what amounted to a Byzantine fortress wall in Cairo. It sent a clear message of the new Armenian dominion in the caliphate. Though the wall has since crumbled... Its three great gates remain standing in Cairo to this day. The Bab Zuwaila, named after a Libyan tribe that formed part of the army, the Bab al-Futu, the gate of conquest, and the Bab al-Nasr, the gate of victory. Badr al-Jamali's inclusion of Armenians didn't just involve a bit of renovation in Cairo. It also involved making social room for his Armenians. Though Badr al-Jamali was a Muslim himself, Ismaili Shia, of course, Many of his Armenian countrymen were not. And so, he welcomed the arrival of an Armenian patriarch, known as a Catholicos, for the Armenian Christian community. These Armenian Christians only added to the tapestry of Christians already present in the caliphate. As we discussed in episode 1.1, there were the non-Chalcedonian Copts, who followed the more or less native Egyptian brand of Christianity. And there were the Melkites, roughly translating to the Imperials, who followed the Orthodox faith and had close ties to the Roman Empire. And especially in the Caliphate's territory in Syria-Palestine, there were the Syrian Christians, also known as Jacobites. And like the Copts, they were also non-Chalcedonian. 
To make room for the new arrivals, the Copts, Melkites, and Jacobites were forced to give up churches and monasteries to house the Armenian Christians. Now, this may not have been that huge a blow, as it seems the famine of the previous decades had devastated these communities. This may have been the tipping point, actually, demographically speaking, when Muslims began to outnumber Christians in Egypt. Minorities are frequently hit hardest by catastrophe, as they lack the same sort of infrastructure to react and rebuild following a crisis. It's harder to snap back if you're only just tolerated by the state. Though in general, Christians seem to have faced lower birth rates than Muslims, for a few factors. Obviously, there were more perks associated with converting to Islam, not least of which it meant no more paying the jizya, the poll tax. And one of the few perks available to Christians was participating in religious life. Becoming a monk was highly respected and an enviable career path for many Christian men. However, these men were then taken out of the dating pool, so to speak, and they didn't have any children, at least not any legitimate ones. And Christian women had to search for partners in the Muslim community. Legally, the children of a Muslim man and a Christian woman were Muslim, not Christian. Over time, this added up and led to a decline in population numbers for the Christian community. And actually, these sorts of problems are still faced by many religious and ethnic minorities throughout the world. Either way, lower numbers meant that less churches and monasteries were needed, obviously. And at least a few of these religious spaces may have already been somewhat empty before they were handed over to the Armenians. And this couldn't have been too violent of a transition, because relations seemed to have been cordial between the Copts and the Armenians, at least. Badr al-Jamali actually cultivated a stronger relationship with the Copts, and used this in an attempt to establish Fatimid dominion over the Christian kingdoms in Ethiopia and Nubia. Unfortunately, given how interesting the history of those regions is, we do not have enough time to fully explore them. So I will only mention that at this time, Nubia was home to two large kingdoms, using their Arabic names, Mugura in the north, and Alwa in the south. Bar al-Jamali was particularly successful in establishing close ties with Mugura, less so with Alwa and Ethiopia, which were farther south. Mugura and Muslim Egypt were closely linked by trade, and this trade was actually protected by what some consider to be the longest-lasting treaty in history, the Bakht, agreed in the 7th century, which not only ensured free movement of goods, but also dictated that the kingdom of Mukura would provide slaves to the Egyptians. This is where a lot of the black regiments, the Sudan as they were known in Arabic, came from. Crucially, unlike the Ethiopians further south, the Nubians were Coptic Christians, and their clergy answered to the Coptic patriarch in Alexandria. In 1078, Badr al-Jamali managed to get a man loyal to him elected as patriarch, and for the next decade, he was able to use the Coptic church to further Fatimid diplomatic aims. This strategy worked particularly well in the case of Mukura, and by the 1080s, the Nubian royal house was subservient to the Fatimids. Very interesting and all, but what does this mean for us? Well, in just a decade's time, the Fatimids would be faced with the question of how to deal with a new Christian sect, the Latin Franks, and their reaction would be informed by dealings with other Christians. For Badr al-Jamali, Building alliances through Christian connections was very useful, actually, as these ties weren't as dependent on the caliph. In dealing with Muslim groups, it was a bit more complicated, as the caliph was necessarily involved. And religious division was felt a little bit more strongly. So we turn now to discussion of the assassins. 
To understand the roots for the Assassin movement, we have to go back a few decades and talk about Shiism in Persia. As we discussed in episode 1.4, before the Seljuks, Western Persia and Mesopotamia were controlled by the Buyid dynasty. Notably, the Buyids were Shia. However, they were not Ismaili Shia. They were Twelver Shia, with an occulted imam who was not around to command them, like the Ismaili Caliph imam would have been able to. Very convenient for the Buyids. Nevertheless, everything changed when the Turkmen attacked. The Seljuks allied themselves with the Abbasid Caliph and became, on paper at least, champions of Sunni Islam, opposed to all forms of Shiism. This left many of the Shia who'd once been the political majority a bit out on a ledge. They were no longer favored by the rulers in power, as they had been in the Buyid days, and many of them were very resentful of the newcomers. Now, as I mentioned back in episode 1.8, the Fatimids were firm believers in religious missions and conversion. They had an entire administrative structure known as the Dawah dedicated to this purpose. Members of the Dawah were known as Dai, and their mission was to advance the cause of Ismaili Shiism throughout the world. Now, the history of the Dawah could be a podcast all on its own, and we're not going to get into the nuance of this organization. But we do need to understand a few things about it. One is that it was very hierarchical, and that one of the primary tenets for converts was total submission to one's teacher. It was also a bit cult-like at times, and somewhat brainwashy. But the main thing is that an influential Dai often personally commanded the loyalty of his followers, and could direct them away from the overall Fatimid cause. This had already led to one spin-off earlier, the Druze faith, which had also grown out of the Dawah. During the civil war and famine of the 1060s, the Dawah had continued operating in Persia, and one of its leading Dais, Ibn Atash, continued working in the shadows of Seljuk conquest. Atash was a physician, and it was maybe in this capacity that he met a man named Hassan Ibn Sabah. Hassan was born around 1040 into a 12er Shia family, and had grown up with this faith. His family appears to have been relatively well-off, and Hassan was intelligent, and he made good use of the rich academic culture of 11th century Iran to study topics such as the natural sciences, mathematics, and astronomy. Ismaili Shiism had a very strong intellectual vein, and it's likely through these nerdy circles that Hassan first came into contact with Ismaili Shias. Hassan would later state that he was impressed by how well the Ismailis could debate their theological points. Hassan was a very capable intellectual figure. And, as we heard in the opening, even Ibn al-Athair, who mostly views Hassan as a villain, can't help but praise his cleverness. Accordingly, he even worked for the Seljuk court and gained in-depth knowledge of the petty family rivalries we explored last time. Around 1072, though, Hassan got sick and nearly died. When he recovered, he appears to have come to a realization and not only converted to Ismaili Shiism, but dedicated his life to the cause. Under the tutelage of Atash, he became a member of the Dawah, and in 1076, he set off for the headquarters of his new faith, Cairo. He may have been pushed to do so by politicking within the Seljuk infrastructure. Some sources state that the vizier Nizam al-Mulk had grown jealous of Hassan's ability with land management and had started a smear campaign against him. I'm a little skeptical of that, but either way, Hassan did make the journey to Egypt. His journey was waylaid by various obstacles, and Hassan didn't arrive in Egypt until 1078, by which point Badr al-Jamali had been fully invested with control of every aspect of the caliphate, including the Dawah. 
Now, let's play a game called List the Various Reasons Hassan and Badr al-Jamali Had to Distrust Each Other. First up on the board is number one. Badr al-Jamali was an outsider. He was an Armenian, and that didn't really place him high in the pecking order in the Muslim world. For an educated, erudite Persian like Hassan, this slave soldier turned generalissimo was definitely not from a respectable background. Number two. Bar al-Jamali had sidelined the caliph imam and taken power for himself, in a way cutting off the holiest of holies from direct contact with his subjects. Number three, Bar al-Jamali had made alliances with the Turkish sectors of his army, the Mashariki, who we discussed back in episode 1.8. Hassan despised the Turks, who he was acquainted with from his experiences growing up during the Seljuk conquest of Persia. In his writings, he even refers to them as jinn, meaning demon, the source of our modern word genie. And number four, Badr al-Jamali was not really interested in the revolutionary ideologies of the Dawah. He was a military man, much more concerned with winning battles, not winning hearts and minds. Lastly, number five, if anything, the religious angle of the Dawah was a threat to his rule, which was much more built on administrative and military control. All of these reasons led to a very strained relationship between the two. Later, rumors would circulate about direct conflict between them, and attempts to ship Hassan off to the Maghreb, or have him arrested, or have him killed, or whatever. We won't get into all that, but in the end, Hassan was strongly encouraged to get the fuck out of Dodge, and so he went back to his homeland. Still nominally a member of the Dawah, but mostly unsupported by and disconnected from the actual Fatimid Caliphate. I'll also add that despite what Ibn al-Athir claimed, it seems Hassan never actually met the Caliph al-Musansir, and almost certainly never spoke about succession plans with him. At this point, he may have already been planning to spin off and do his own thing. He was definitely making sure that his followers were loyal to him above anything else, that's for sure. The Seljuk conquest may have actually made things a bit easier for him, as it left many Shia in the region a bit aimless, and Hassan was able to present his brand of Ismaili Shia as the ultimate form of resistance to the Sunni Turks. Hassan faced a different sort of challenge from that of the Ismaili Da'is of the early 11th century. The Seljuk administration was particularly concerned with rooting out Shiism in their lands, the vizier Nizam al-Mulk dedicated an entire section of his Siyasat Nama, or Book of Government, to calling out the Ismailis for being agents of the Antichrist. He also set up a system of madrasas, or colleges, to develop and spread a fastly evolving, more orthodox form of Sunni Islam. Hassan would have to face these challenges using novel tactics. He had no hope of defeating the Seljuks in actual battle, but he could do his best to destabilize their rule. So, as we saw in the opening, he concentrated his efforts on acquiring a base, which he did, the fortress of Alamut. And from here, Hassan began an assassination campaign. As we heard in the opening, even at this early age, one of the criticisms leveled against Hassan and his Nizari Ismailis was their use of assassination. The Nizari Ismaili would become famous for their fida'a yin, an Arabic word meaning roughly someone who sacrifices. Think along the lines of the term martyr. The Nizari Fidayin specifically sacrificed their lives to get close to their targets and assassinate them. The fervor and disregard for their own lives that was shown by the Nizari assassins was shocking. 
it certainly wasn't normal for folks to just open themselves up to torture and execution for whatever obscure goals their religious leader had. The Nizari Fidayin were a new breed of holy warrior, and we'll be touching on the ways holy war was evolving in both Christianity and Islam later on. For now, all we have to know is that they were pretty much hated and feared by everyone. They were also easy scapegoats. The murder of Nizam al-Mulk, for example, is usually touted as the first Nizari assassination. But it might have had nothing to do with them. Malik Shah is just as likely a candidate. But it was easy to point the finger at Hassan and his fanatics. Meanwhile, Hassan and the Nizari Ismaili state were more than happy to take the blame. Remember, they were all about spectacle. This made them seem much more threatening. If they could get to the vizier, one of the most, if not the most, powerful figure in all of the Seljuk Empire, then they could very easily get to you. And so you better not mess with them. Now, I keep calling them the Nizari Ismaili, but in the 1080s and early 1090s, that label is anachronistic. They were technically just members of the Ismaili Dawa, still a part of the Fatimid Caliphate. I want to lean really heavily on that technically bit. There's no way Badr al-Jamali was dictating Hassan's movements or anything like that. Hassan was clearly deviating from the traditional dawah, no doubt inspired by the lack of religious direction he'd witnessed in Egypt. But this break hadn't really been officialized yet, though it soon would be. Eerily similar to what had happened in the Seljuk Empire in 1092, when both the vizier Nizam al-Mulk and the sultan Malik Shah died in the same year, 1094 brought with it the deaths of both the vizier Badr al-Jamali and the caliph imam al-Mustansir. Now, the expected successor to the caliph imam was al-Mustansir's eldest son, Nizar. Nizar did not particularly care for the Armenians, and it's possible he'd already been in contact with Hassan to gain support from the Persian Ismailis. He also had his own right-hand man for the job of vizier, so he wouldn't be needing any help from the Armenians, thank you very much. Nizar seemed poised to bring the caliphate back into the hands of its caliph, and it might have worked too, if not for Alafdal. Alafdal was Badr al-Jamali's son, and he wasn't going to relinquish the power his family had gained that easily. Upon the death of his father, he managed to have his position as vizier confirmed, but when al-Mustansir died just a few months later, he knew Nizar was waiting in the wings to dismiss him, so he acted with great haste. Luckily, al-Afdal had his own candidate for Caliph Imam on hand. Badr al-Jamali had already foreseen this future and planned ahead. Back in episode 1.8, I mentioned that political marriages weren't really common for the Fatimids. But Badr al-Jamali had changed that. In a move very similar to what Malik Shah had tried to do with the Abbasid Caliph, he'd had one of the Caliph's sons, Al-Ahmad, married to his daughter. So immediately after the death of Al-Mustansir, Al-Aftal had his young brother-in-law immediately recognized as the new Caliph Imam, ensuring that the Caliphate would be tied to his family and to him. The new Caliph Imam was given the regnal name Al-Mustafa li din Allah, the one chosen by God, basically. Nizar wasn't done yet, though. He fled to Alexandria and raised the flag of revolt. He was going to become caliph or die trying. 
And well, guess which one ended up happening? In 1095, Nizar was captured. The new vizier of the sword, Alafdal, proved to be just as ruthless as his father, and he had the pretender walled up alive. In Persia, Hassan perhaps saw all of this as an opportunity. See, Nizar was dead, but he didn't have to be like, dead dead. Recall that the Twelver Shia had no problem following an occulted imam, who only existed metaphysically. So the Nizari Ismaili began to claim that they also had an imam, hidden in Alamut. This imam was apparently Nizar's son, who had been smuggled out of Egypt. Or in one wilder account, this imam was actually Nizar himself, who had somehow magically placed himself in the womb of a slave girl, and then like, been reborn and given a new name. Just don't question it too much. Either way, it was soon accepted that the Dai Hassan spoke on behalf of this new imam, who may or may not have existed, and who may or may not have been Nizar's son. For the Ismaili in Persia and Syria, an imam hidden away in a castle was no different from one in faraway Egypt. Despite the sketchy details, the bottom line was clear. The Iranian Dawah had broken with the Fatimid Caliphate, and Hassan ibn Sabah was in charge. It's unlikely the new vizier Al-Afdal cared too much. He was of more of a secular mindset, and less ideological. So for him, the whole affair had been more or less a victory. He'd snuffed out Nizar and confirmed his family's dominion over the caliphate. And he'd been able to make it through the whole transition without any loss of territory. Likely because by the time his father and the caliph had died in 1094, the Seljuk Empire, their greatest rival, was in the midst of its great civil war. It would not be settled as easily as Al-Aftal had dealt with the succession in Egypt, and it was still raging as Al-Aftal began to settle into his father's old chair. So, he decided to take advantage of the situation and put his efforts towards reconquest. This had actually started earlier, during the last few years of Badraj Mali's reign, and as I mentioned last time, the Fatimids began to creep back up the coast, and by 1098, they made it all the way to Jerusalem. If you recall, the great sultan's brother, Tutush, had held the city ever since his victory over Atsis. In 1086, he'd appointed Artuk as governor of the city. We've met Artuk before. He was actually the Turkmen who'd captured Roussel de Bayol and Ioannis Dukas way back in episode 1.12. It appears, though, that the relatively calm life of a governor didn't suit Artuk, and he died only five years later. He was succeeded by his sons, Sukmen and Ilgazi. Those two names will be coming up again. Nevertheless, by 1098, the Turkmen of Syria-Palestine were in no position to coordinate their response to anything, as we clearly established last time. And so Al-Aftal found it easy to take Jerusalem. Something else happened in 1098, though. To paraphrase from Michael Brett's The Fatimid Empire, in that year, however, a wholly new factor entered the Syrian equation a completely unexpected outcome of Alp Arslan's victory at Manzikert. Yet another new folk from outside the old Arab empire had entered the original domain of Islam. Coupled with the departure of the Nizaris from the Dawah, it was an event that set the Fatimid Renaissance on a new course in a new world, politically and ideologically. That's right, the Franks had arrived. The Fatimids' first response was a bit muted. 
Alafdal likely viewed the Franks as more or less representatives of the Roman Empire. An infidel empire, sure. But the Armenian viziers weren't squeamish about dealing with Christians. Surely these new Christians would be no different. Perhaps they could return to the status quo before the Seljuks, when the Romans and the Fatimids had collaborated and shared a relatively peaceful border in the Levant. It was probably with this sort of an arrangement in mind that Alafdal sent an embassy to the Franks besieging Antioch. The embassy was warmly received, and the Franks seemed outwardly willing to deal with the Fatimids. At least, the crusade leaders seemed willing to do so. We will be talking about internal crusader politics in the future, but from the Fatimid perspective, Al-Aftal made a mistake when he took the crusaders to be open to collaboration. Shortly after taking Antioch, they soon began to march southwards, and just a year after the Fatimids had reconquered the holy city, the Franks laid waste to Jerusalem's defenses. And, in the scene we started this season with, its residence. The extreme violence the Franks showed at Jerusalem dispelled any notions of a peaceful border, and Al-Afdal soon found himself forced to wage holy war and establish a thugar, a frontier against the infidel, in southern Palestine. I say forced because it was the Franks who drew the line along religious divisions. The Fatimid Caliphate had no quarrel with the Copts or Armenian Christians or the Nubians, if anything, the split with the revolutionary Persian Dawah showed how little invested the Armenian military dictatorship running things in Egypt were in heady ideological concepts. Nevertheless, the Fatimids would find themselves transformed by the religious tension the Franks had introduced into the region. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Next time, our first season of History of the Uchmer comes to an end. We'll be returning to Constantinople to catch up with Alexios Komnenos as he makes plans to rope the Latin Christians into a war of reconquest. And we'll wrap up the season by examining the world of the Eastern Mediterranean as it welcomed, willingly or unwillingly, the arrival of Western forces for the first time in centuries. Jerusalem is calling.